Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the group that's here, that the, they are hungry to hear your voice this morning. Um, I pray that your spirit would do what only your spirit can do, which is to uh, move our hearts, to open our hearts, to receive what you would say to us this morning in Exodus. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit once again testify to the beauty of Christ. Draw us in. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Last week, we saw what we called the sealing of the covenant between God and the people of Israel. Right? Remember how that happened? We had the, the blood covenant. There was a sacrifice. There was a reading of the covenant. Then the altar was sprinkled with blood. Then there was a reading of the covenant again to the people, and the pillars and the people were sprinkled with blood. So we have a, a cut covenant, it was called. Um, and at the end of that, there was a meal. Remember that? Where the elders were on the mountain, and they had this meal with God. They saw God. They beheld God, and they, and they ate and drank before him. This week, Moses is called up onto the mountain, further up, further in. Uh, look at, uh, we're going to start chapter 24, starting in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire, on the top of the mountain, in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. First question, what is the air on? Seriously, is it really? Wow. It's like 97 in here. It feels like the top of Sinai. Is it? Um, Look what he says. He starts off with, with, to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. Um, he calls Moses higher up the mountain. Why? What, for what purpose? What is, he, what is he doing? What's happening? Why is God calling him up? Get him closer to his presence for what, for what purpose? Give him, give him the tablets of stone. What's on the tablets of stone? The law and the law. Well, it says which I have prepared. Oh. The, the, the law is on there, the Ten Commandments, typically. You know, um, <laughs> the Ten Commandments. How many? 
How many, tablets. How many tablets? Thank you for the clarification. Two tablets. How do you know that? You read ahead because it was in Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments. Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.13 talks about there being two tablets. What's on them? The words in the, of the covenant. We see that later in Exodus 34.28. How are they written? How do you know that? You read ahead. Chapter 31.18 says that God wrote them with his own finger. Um, why two tablets? It's all you get old. It's a utilitarian purpose on the two tablets. The first four laws and then six. Okay, so you think, so the, the, the typical way we see it in the courthouse pictures that are allowed to remain of the Ten Commandments, you see four on one tablet and six on the other. Is that typically the way we see it? Yes? No? Maybe? Five? They, they do it even? Because it looks odd if you do it, you know. Can't have... Decorator's eye just goes askew. Um, so typically we see two tablets with all ten spread out over the tablets in some form or fashion. Um, I think we can say with... with a lot of confidence that that's not the way it was done. In fact, each tablet had the complete law. Why? He breaks both later. Why do you think that would be the case? What are we talking about here? What, what kind of event has just happened? Yes, that's exactly what it is. This was a treaty that took place between the great king and the client nation. That's the model that God is using, a cultural model that he's using to show his relationship, his covenant relationship with his people. It's kind of like a carbon copy. Well, carbon <laughs> copy. I don't, okay. Um, it's a copy. So you, you have one that goes to the people, so there's no confusion about what the law is and then one is uh, symbolically or I mean represents given to God so he knows what the law is and neither one has an argument well I misunderstood or uh, I voted on it before I knew what was in it you know there's none of that each one has a copy of the law Joshua here is mentioned for the second time why do you think that is it's the second time we've seen this guy. Okay. For what purpose? What are they trying to show? What is, what is Moses trying to show? Right. That Joshua was with him. Because he was with him up there on the top. So he All the way to the top? The personal assistant. Right. But does Joshua go all the way up? I don't think so. And I think, I think the reason that I know that is because I read ahead. <laughs> um, there, he, Moses comes off the mountain to Moses, uh, to Joshua. And it's a very interesting scene there. He comes down to Joshua and says. <laughs> anyway, we're, 
There's the rabbit trail. Um, he comes down off the summit to Joshua, and that's whenever they hear the singing of the people below as they're having their time with the cash cow. Um, so he doesn't go all the way up, but he does go partially up with Moses. The ESV uses the term assistant here for Moses. Literally, in, in, in the smart guys tell us the language, it means uh, minister of Moses. And he keeps that title right up until Moses' death. And what this shows is just a loyalty of Joshua to Moses. Very loyal to him. Um, uses the term mountain of God. Have we heard that term before? When? Um, several times. Okay. Uh, was it this fourth? Yes. So, was the burning bush here? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what mountain did uh, Abraham and Isaac ascend? Well. Was that a different mountain? No, it was the same area, same region, and some believe it was the same mountain, but I, that's conjecture. I tend to, they circled tend to it several times in the, in the wilderness. Yep. Uh, this, again, refers to Sinai, refers to that region of, of Horeb. Um, mountain of God here refers to Sinai. Later, mountain of God will refer to Zion in Jerusalem where the temple rests. And that's kind of important for this scene. What does he tell the elders to do, the 70 who are on the mountain with him? What does he say? Wait here until we return. Was it wait here for a little while? We may or may not come back. This is looking pretty dubious. No, we're going to come back. Where are they on the mountain? The elders. They're further up than the people. Um, first of all, notice the concern of Moses for the welfare of the people. He makes sure that someone is there to take care of the legal needs of, of the day and all that kind of stuff. But... Um, but they're, they're, they're further up than the people. There's a, um, well, let's, let's hold off on that. What's this cloud at the top, verse 15 and 16? What is that all about? Probably to hide the presence of God. Okay. Have we seen it before? There's a cloud and a pillar of fire that led them. Okay, that led them, right? On top of the mountain at 19? Is that where you're going? Well, right before. Right before. He comes, he descends, and there's this lightning and thunder, and his voice is like a thunder, and then there's many thunders going around, all this kind of stuff. So there's a, there's a clear, what we would call theophany, a presence of God, a manifestation of the presence of God in, in nature here. Uh, and it's kind of intimidating, if you remember chapter 19. I mean, it's so intimidating that the people are are running, right? They're running away. You talk to God. Don't let God talk to us lest we die. So there's some, there's some lightning, very, very frightening. So it's all, it's all there. Um, and it's into this very intimidating manifestation of God's presence that Moses is called up to ascend. What do you think is going on in his mind? think? I mean, would you be? 
cleanse the same thing. time, he's, he's seen this side of God. Sure, sure. Because Right. He's in awe of what he sees, and yet he trusts the nature and character of God to obey him when he says, come on up. I mean, if he was going to kill me, he'd have killed me already. Yeah, I mean, I'd have been dead in the desert already. So he, he hears the command, come on up, and he obeys it. Uh, I want to throw this at you. Um, the, the, um, the mountain here, you have three tiers of intensity of the presence of God here, don't you? You have people at the, at the base who don't come up, who are not to touch, who are, who are way far away. Um, you have halfway up, a little closer, kind of a, an inner circle of leaders who's there midway up, right? And then you have at the very summit the very presence of God in the cloud to which one man goes up into. Does that sound familiar to you? It sounds like, (laughs) yes, Ty's ESV study Bible has a picture of the temple and it has three sections. There is an outer court, an inner court, and the Holy of Holies. And that same structure you kind of see here where the summit itself is the Holy of Holies where the high priest Moses, the mediator, goes in. Uh, the picture here is that the mountain itself is a sanctuary. It's called the mountain of God, and that's, like I said earlier, a name that's later associated with the temple on Zion. All right. We will see this uh, when we explore the laws of the tabernacle, that, uh, that, that, uh, that there is that structure. But also we'll see that um, just like the tabernacle, the altar that was done for the covenant was the furthest away from the Holy of Holies. The altar here is at the base of the mountain away from the summit, right? So there's sacrifice, blood is spilled, and then you move into the presence of God through stages. That's the picture here. It's the same idea. Um, What's the draw? For Moses to go up. Why would he go up? The Lord said to Moses, come up to me in the mountain. Right. What's there to, to pull him in, do you think? What's the, the attraction to obey this command? <laughs> I'm, I'm okay right here. Thank you. Okay. Right. The cloud is there. The presence of God is there. He's drawn in because he wants to be where God is. Uh, yes, there's a command, but there's also a draw. And he gave, and, and that is the the covenant testament. What he what he told him what he would give him, which is the the, the two tablets. But Kevin, also, he he's Moses is in charge of leading all the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's probably, I, I want to go up to God and ask God what he wants to do. Maybe he 
instruction as to how to lead these people takes some of the burden off of Moses. And which which God does. Right. Um, so yeah, it's a heavy a heavy burden to lead. There is a a. Um, a promise sort of, of refreshment here, even though he's going to be up there 40 days and 40 nights. A later text would say he doesn't eat or drink the whole time he's up there. That's odd. Does that sound familiar to you, by the way? 40 days, 40 nights, no eating, drinking. Always a good answer in Sunday school. Yes. The glory of the Lord dwelt there, it says. Now that verb for dwelt anticipates the noun uh, the noun. Uh, were the, the noun for tabernacle in the next few chapters. They're very similar sounding words, kind of the same, the same base. Um, the tabernacle is the dwelling place for God. And so he's anticipating. There's this picture of this three stages of the presence of God, and the, the language anticipates what's coming in 25 and later, um, in 25 and later about the, the giving of the tabernacle. Do you see the picture here? Where's God and where are the people? He's at the top. Where are the people? They're separated from God, right? He is holy other. He's at the summit of the mountain. He makes it very clear they're not to touch the mountain. He is separate from his people. They can see it. They look up. They see the, the cloud. And their perception of the cloud is a little interesting, I think, at this point. What, are they, what did it appear to as the people? A consuming fire. Now, they had just gone through the deliverance from Egypt, sustaining in the desert, um, winning their first military victory, which is always a cool thing for a struggling nation. They've cut a covenant with this God. And he has been gracious to them, made all these promises to them about uh, growing them into a great nation even more. And yet, to them, the glory of the Lord appears as a consuming fire. Why? Does that not surprise you? Why would they cling to that fear that way? I understand awe. But they're scared for their lives still. Do they understand the character of God? Do they get his nature here? Maybe they get it a little better than we do. Maybe, maybe you and I should get a little more terrified of God. Based on what? If I trust what he's done for me in Christ... There's a difference in holy reverence and the terror that they're feeling here. Isn't that the point of he is our peace? That, that we can come into his presence without um, boldly before the throne of grace, he says. Again, not brazenly, but boldly because of what Christ has done. Um, I, I think he kind of had to. I think he trusted in what he had seen of God already. Or he might have been running the other way. But did the children of Israel understand the I, I don't think they did. I don't think they did. I think they're still fearful that he's going to strike them down. We, where does Jesus then get exposed that they were terrified? I mean, I see that it says they saw the, the consuming fire. Right. 
What does a consuming fire do? It devours, it burns, it consumes. And so they're looking up at the mountain and they're looking at, and they're seeing what should be a, you know, a beautiful expression of God's power, his sovereignty, all of this. He's going to kill us. He's going to devour us. That's the idea behind the language here. Um, so, and, and, it, and it kind of goes back to what they said in chapter 19. You speak to God, don't let him speak to us anymore, or lest we die. It's the same idea. Not yet. God is separated from his people. He's wholly other and yet calls only Moses up. But he calls him up, and we'll see this in the later chapters, to build something by which he will descend and dwell with his people. The key here is they don't have to keep coming back to the mountain to see the presence of God. He's building a dwelling place where he will be their God and they will be his people together. He will dwell with his people, not on a mountain, but in a tabernacle, a tent, a, a house ultimately in the temple where he will dwell with them. Here's the point. God gives the plan and gives the plan for this tabernacle and commands Moses to build it. Moses does not command God to come down to what he has built. Right? And we'll see that here in a little bit. Why the seven days and then uh, of, the, of, the, of the waiting period here for Moses? He sees the cloud. He waits six days. And on the seventh day, he goes on up. What do you, what do you think that points to? Have we seen that before? What is seven typically representative of in Old Testament? Completeness. Completeness, okay. Mirrors creation. Mirrors something else. Perfection, Perfection. okay. We've seen this seven cycle anywhere else? Creation. Sabbath, yeah. Uh, that's the calendar unit of the Hebrews. Yes? They have to do, it's like Robert said, with their rest. I mean, going yeah. back, you know, the, doing kind of the rest of God. And if he didn't sleep or drink for 40 days, that was a miracle. It's, it's like heaven within them. Right. Living off the presence of God and not needing the normal physical things that they can do. So if, if God's presence is a consuming fire um, and he waits six days and on the seventh come up, which is fresh on their minds from just having received all of these Sabbath laws, is that an indication that I'm going to destroy you when you come up or I'm going to give you peace and rest when you come up? You see, that, that's the idea. Um, it's a day of rest when Moses is called into the glory cloud itself. So you have, um, you have this, the people seeing consuming fire. Moses is seeing peace with God on, on the mountain. All right, 40 days. What does that typically mean? What do we, what, what do we see in the idea of 40 days, 40 nights? It rained for 40 There's, there's like judgment a, issue there. It's like completeness or like a, a cycle for 40, 40 years as a generation. 
Okay, so it's a it's a, a specific time period. Is it, they wanted for 40 years at the time of trial. Who else? 40 days, 40 nights. Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. Yes, because he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water for a time of testing and trial as well to lead him into, to open up his ministry on earth. All right. Turn to Matthew 17, 1 through 8. How does it start? Matthew 17, 1 through 8. After six days. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold... There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. It's the picture here. You see the similarities. Jesus is the greater Moses. That's the picture here. Um, Moses says in, to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 18.15, and we will get there someday. Lord willing, the creek don't rise. <laughs> the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, lest you think that I'm actually making this stuff up, injecting Christ into this statement by Moses, uh, turn to Acts 3, 22. Don't want to ever be accused of eisegesis. Reading something in that's not there. I'll follow Peter's lead on that one. Verse 22. It's, a, it's the second sermon of Peter after Pentecost. Uh, but what God, start in verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send 
the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And that shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Who's the servant, according to Peter? Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. Jesus. But in Matthew 17, what would Peter's offer have done? I'm going to build a temple for you. HCSB. I'm going to build a temple for you, for Moses, and for Elijah. What would that have done? Where would Christ, Moses, and Elijah, where would Christ, the law, and the prophets have remained following Peter's building of these little tents? On the mountain. That's Old Covenant. God separated. Because even in the tabernacle, he's still separated. He's among them in their midst, but they can only get into the Holy of Holies through one man. And him, very rarely. Peter's offer would have kept Christ on the mountain. He would have kept on the mountain the one who tabernacled among them, according to John 1. And, and as I read Matthew 17, it almost appears that God is dismissive of Peter's idea and that he doesn't even allow him to finish speaking. And all of a sudden the cloud is coming in. I mean, he politely interrupts with a little bit of white cloud. Um, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He didn't say that about Adam. He didn't say that about Noah, even if he looked like Russell Crowe. Uh, he didn't say that about Abraham or Moses or David. He's pleased with only one. He's well pleased with only one. And he gives a command to the three who were there, and by extension, through them, he gives it to us sitting here this morning. It says, listen to him. Peter, stop talking. You cannot satisfy the holiness you see before you by your efforts, by building your dwelling place and compelling me to stay there. The dwelling place is my son. Listen to him. Not Mary, who by this time thought he was crazy and came with his brothers to seize him. And though they may be instructive, not church councils or parachurch coalitions, not Piper, MacArthur, Dever, or Duncan, not even Moeller or Mahaney. Listen to him. Kevin? Yes. Consequently, uh, 
two, it's three and not one. So it's like Christ would be sharing his glory with Moses and Elijah. He is now equal with the lawgiver and the prophet um, so up on the mountain. But you and I, we are responsible to listen to him. We can't rely upon the words of others. They may be instructive. We can't trust them. We have to trust him, to follow him, to plead for wisdom and discernment that we may be faithful to him. And here's the thing that I find incredibly interesting. In Christ, there is no level of presence. It collapses down to him, the person in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And he doesn't stay on the mountain. He grabs the three and says, let's go down. There aren't those at the bottom uh, there aren't the more special ones with the funny hats who are halfway up and then one guy at the top. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, it says in Colossians. Do you trust him and him? Here's the key word, alone. Do you trust him and him alone? Any, uh, any comments on that? No, in fact, it's where we'll be spending a lot of our time as we go through the tabernacle. Because the temple idea, tabernacling with God, being in presence with God, is how that happens is throughout Scripture. And so ultimately it, it, it finds its culmination in that picture in Revelation 21, 22, the new heavens and the new earth, and then I saw a city descend. What do you mean new heavens and new earth? You just said you saw a city descend. What are we talking about there? The presence of God is with his people, and the people of God are, are the church. It's, it's the church that he is, he is gathering to himself. So, yeah, we're going to spend a lot of time on that idea as we walk through the tabernacle. I think a lot of people tend to, and there's some, some basis for this, but a lot of people tend to say, oh, the altar means this, or the, or the candlestick means this, or the table means this. And, the, and there, yeah, there's some of that. But the idea is God dwelling with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And it's just, it's a very clear picture of Christ, the whole concept. So we're going to be uh, seeing that. Tim, back to the consuming fire, the devouring fire. Yes. That last, not only for the first, for the whole 40 days, but also for the seven days prior. Yes. So that, to me, that, that speaks to God's uh, eternal nature. Yeah. Because, you know, you see a lightning bolt and it's a flashing blink of an eye. That's mm-hmm. a consuming fire, one mm-hmm. lightning bolt. But it comes down, crashes, and then goes away. And you're like, okay. 
Well, it, it was the cloud that they saw. And, it, and, and somehow or another to them, the cloud appeared like some sort of fire. But to Moses, it, it wasn't enough of, well, I say it wasn't enough. He trusted the nature of God even though what he saw may have been intimidating. So we don't know if he was seeing the ten things but was trusting God or if but it meant something different. was looking at God but seeing something, but seeing something different. different yeah. Or interpreting the meaning differently because of where they, because of what their presupposition was, where it was their starting point. Uh, is God good? Is He enough? Has He redeemed me, or do I need to keep doing stuff? Down at the base, they're thinking we need to be doing stuff. He's a consuming fire, and I can't do enough. Moses understands the covenant is God's condescension to the people to to make peace with them make peace with him. So they had to have seen more than just a cloud, otherwise they would have described it as a dark cloud. They described it as a consuming fire. Well, if you remember in chapter 19, there was more going on. There was a cloud. There was a dark cloud, but there were thunders. And then there was the voice of God like a thunder, which was even louder than the thunders. And then there was, you know, something like Gimli's ram horn thing going on there. With the, <laughs> and then there was uh, the lightnings and all this kind of stuff. I want to put that as a ringtone on my phone, by the way. I think that would be awesome. Kind of thing. Anyway, sorry. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot going on on the top of the mountain. But where you start is, is he good toward me or not? And that's how they interpreted uh, what they saw. Any, any, anything else? The index? Yeah. Okay. I've had discussions with people that talk about uh, verse 20. Uh, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Yeah, you go us. But, um, I haven't seen that happen yet. Right. If we, if we interpret that verse to mean like no, I can move. Because that's what I've had. It's, I guess especially like the word of faith means I think that you mm -hmm. should I haven't seen a faith healer move a pen, yeah. much less a mountain. And uh, I've never made that connection to the transfiguration, which is also in the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. which is, I don't know if I'm not a very astute reader, but um, you, you mentioned uh, in Exodus, I can't remember there, I think. Four? Yeah, about the mountain of God being mm -hmm. the dwelling place, place mm -hmm. of God, and mm -hmm. later that refers to Mount Zion. Mm -hmm. And um, after the tabernacle was taken away, uh, we're the dwelling That's, that's the idea that you get from this tabernacle idea through yeah. Scripture, is yeah. that it's a people. It becomes ultimately in Revelation, you see it's a people, right. not, not a building. So then you go back to Matthew 17, 20, where it talks about moving the mountain, and it's moving, I, I think you can make the connection to it, it's moving the, uh, the soul of a person to uh, conversion. Sure, I mean, that, that's, that's one, a, that's one aspect thing. of it, I would think, yeah. because with God, uh, with man is impossible, with God, all things are possible. Where is, that, yeah. where is that statement made? Well, it's in the context of the rich young ruler who walks away after being yeah. drawn to Christ, and then his own the love of money kept him away. For 
And salvation is an impossible thing. Sure. So it's, it requires faith to do that. And he does it through, through his church, through his people. Okay. That's one, I think that's one takeaway. All right. Well, let's uh, let's pray. It's ten oh five. We are ending early. Father, what a great picture. We have no right to be the dwelling place for God. We have no right to receive Christ. We have no right to. Um, to uh, demand that he uh, live among us, that you be with us. We have nothing to offer you. We have nothing to build that would be worthy of your presence. And yet you in your great grace came off the mountain and prepared a body for Christ, poured your presence into him, did the unthinkable by coming in the form of man fully God, fully man to lay, to lay down your life for an unworthy people how could we not be humbled by that how could we not be in awe of that how could we not tremble at that Father I pray that you Make this a reality, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, that we would have emotions that are conformed to your image as well as minds that are conformed to your image. That lesser things that nip at our heels would be seen for what they are, no gods at all. That Christ is everything and Christ alone. Pray that you draw us further in to him, to love him more. It's in his name we pray. Amen.